You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, hoping to make fresh soil from which new life might spring. In this episode, we'll be talking about the difference between being partisan and being political. We'll talk smoke and bushfires, cashless welfare cards, the erosion of civil rights, and China's secret concentration camps. I'm here tonight with Brooke Prentice, Waka Waka Woman, Aboriginal spokesperson for Common Grace, coordinator of the Grass Tree Gathering. Brooke is currently a senior fellow at Anglican Deaconess Ministries. She's director of Peace Talks here at Paddington Anglican. And in a delightful piece of news, Common Grace have recently announced that Brooke will be their next CEO. Welcome, Brooke. It's excellent to have you back on The Good Dirt. Thanks so much for having me. Brooke, would you bring an acknowledgement of country? I'd love to bring an acknowledgement of country. I guess just some words about acknowledgement of country, and this is part of the acknowledgement of country, that for me it's more than just words. It's actually about heart and mind coming together through a genuine want and act of building relationship uh, with Aboriginal peoples. And uh, I'm sure the things that we'll talk about tonight just show how much we need to continue to build relationship. And thank you for having me on your podcast. And so as we uh, sit here on the land of the Gadigal peoples, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands. They have been and continue to be custodians, stewards, caretakers of these lands and waters as they have been for thousands of years. And uh, I acknowledge the teaching of Uncle Ray Davison, uh, who's taught me about this area just in this year and about these lands are now what's known as the Eora Nation, but make up uh, 29 clans, make up the Eora Nation Uh, bordered by three sacred rivers. And so we remember what was here for thousands of years, for millennia. We acknowledge the care and custodianship of the Gadigal peoples. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and future. When we pay our respects, it's actually acknowledging that these are real people, real people who have fought for equality, justice, education, reconciliation, conciliation, relationship and friendship. And so we bring all of these things as we meet and listen to one another and talk together uh, tonight. We acknowledge country and that's more than just peoples. That's more than just land, more than just waters. It is all of creation and the interconnectedness of those relationships between peoples, plants, animals, trees, lands, waters, birds, fish, and sky. Thanks, Brooke. Our first segment is What's the Big Idea? Where we take the concept and see how it might illuminate the news for us. Over the last year, we've looked through a number of different concepts on the good dirt. With Scott Sanders, we talked about common grace. When Brooke was first on, on the second episode, we talked about just world belief, a concept we've come back to in many previous episodes. Then with Lisa Sharon Harper, we talked about core spiritual lies. In episode four with Josh Doughton, we talked about the epistemic priority on the oppressed. With Dr. Miriam Pepper, we talked about the Murray-Darling River Basin. With Ben Thurley, the Overton Window. With the Reverend Dr. Jason John, we talked about identity protective cognition. With Professor David Clough, we discussed humans and other animals. With Dr. Mick Pope, we were talking Anthropocene. And last episode with Adam Wood, we discussed intergenerational injustice. And so we're taking some concept that can help us 
piece together the disparate dots that we come across in news headlines and try to find some of the patterns behind them, illuminating the forces for change in our world today that take us behind the daily froth and bubble and into the deeper trends and forces shaping our life today. And our big idea today is the distinction between being political and being partisan. People tell me all the time, I don't want to be political. And I think what they usually mean is actually, I don't want to be partisan. There's a crucial difference here that I think people are conflating and it makes it harder to think about a number of the issues that we uh, face in society today. Being political, as I understand it, is taking actions that seek to shape the polis, the city or society, specifically the distribution and application of power in the polis. So being partisan, in contrast, means a particular way of being political. It's, it's taking actions that are loyal to and seeking to improve the power of a particular political party. And for me, this is a really important distinction because while much of what I write and do is manifestly political, it's about the distribution and application of power in society, I've nonetheless sought to avoid being partisan. I'm not, personally, and have never been a member of a political party, though I do encourage people to join various parties under certain circumstances. I've never, as far as I can remember, told someone how to vote or to, told them to vote for a particular political party. Uh, I've never told anyone precisely which candidates or parties I've voted for. I think maybe just once or twice I might have mentioned too. At various times, I've criticised policies and representatives of almost every party currently in Parliament and even some that aren't. I've generally focused on those who are in power at the time. I've commended the actions and policies of many parties. Now, in all this, I haven't pretended to be balanced. I haven't uh, implicitly or explicitly tried to say that the centre is where truth is typically found, that we need a bit of both sides, because I think that actually leaves unexamined and unchallenged the huge number of assumptions that are shared by both major parties. To my mind, one of the most effective strategies pursued across the board by the current federal coalition government, effective from a purely vote-crunching, short-term partisan perspective, an approach that they've pursued since at least 2013 under all three prime ministers, though I think it was Tony Abbott who really ramped it up. This strategy has been to attack every entity in civil society that is respected as some kind of authority or, or umpire, we might say, but is also not explicitly partisan. And so the government have sought to disband or defund or stack the board of or white and or smear or, or seek to co-opt a wide range of institutions and organisations with the goal of deepening an us versus them mentality. Try and name a widely respected public institution with a credible voice that have usually been seen as non-partisan and you'll likely find recent evidence of coalition attempts to sideline, starve or smear them. Whether it's the Human Rights Commission, the ABC, public universities, the Electoral Commission, the CSIRO, the Climate Commission, the Climate Change Authority, the Parliamentary Budget Office, the Bureau of Meteorology, the Reserve Bank, professional associations like the Australian Medical Association, and, and many, many more. And the same is actually true of many international bodies, whether it's the UN or even the Pope. And I submit this is more than just the usual cut and thrust of policy debate, but it represents an attack on the very idea of independent authorities, the very idea of organisations that are political without being partisan. And it's based on a kind of total political war in which 
Whoever is not for us is against us, in which every critic becomes an enemy. And of course, perfect neutrality can also be an illusion, a bit of a slippery and ultimately impossible ideal. Nonetheless, maintaining space for the pursuit of non-partisan public discourse is foundational to the possibility of civil society and the rule of law. So these attacks, aided at every step of the way by the Murdoch media, undermine trust in the possibility of shared facts. Inconvenient truths pointed out by non-partisan authorities can be branded fake news, as Donald Trump is wont to do, and written off as enemy partisan spin. In this way, the current government has weathered a downpour of exposed lies, major scandals, and revelations of corruption, not to mention its resolute commitment to undermining the habitability of the planet, and yet has managed to win two further elections. So this strategy has been electorally effective, but deeply corrosive of the possibility of civil society, shared truth, or progress towards anything approximating democracy. And I think such civil society umpires play a crucial role in helping to shape a shared set of understandings that can span ideological divides and try to keep political debates capable of at least some shared language. And I'm not saying that these organisations are strictly apolitical. In practice, they often cannot be so, especially when one side might be blatantly lying. And in such circumstances, simply to hold to the truth is a political act. But I'm saying they can be political without necessarily being partisan. Without umpires, while the players may continue to protest their innocence, the game soon goes to the side more willing to play dirty. Now, some people might hear this and say, no, Byron, you've mostly understood. It's not just that I don't want to be partisan. I also don't want to even be political. I want to be totally neutral. I want to stay out of all politics. I'm, I'm sick of it all. In the end, I think this is only thinkable for those who are already quite privileged. Only those whose wealth, race, abilities, gender, education, or, or so on, allows them to live a life in which they won't be a target, whether it's of bigotry or attacks or even incarceration and outright persecution. Only someone with privilege can think like this. If you don't want to get political, it's probably not your life or your safety that are at stake in these discussions. Yes, it's tiring and difficult to wrestle with issues of oppression, and so self-care and community care are essential. But if you find politics annoying and just want everyone to be nice, you may be blinding yourself to the ways that power is currently being used to kill and wound and silence. Sitting out from that struggle is to let the bullies win. You might not see it, but that too is part of privilege, the ability to not have to see it, because it doesn't affect you directly. And one context where I think this holds is uh, I, I often meet people who are really concerned about the climate crisis, but they, they don't want to be political. In fact, they say, we don't have time to be political. This is an issue that ought to be above politics. And I think what they typically mean is that they think it ought to be a desire shared by all major parties. It ought to be bipartisan policy to address climate disruption. And yes, that would be wonderful, but it simply isn't at the moment. So what are we going to do about it? Anything that we do is a form of getting political about it. Even the insistence that we're non-partisan is itself a political move. Your thoughts, Brooke? Yeah, this is a really uh, interesting observation and discussion. And, you know, as an Aboriginal person who often doesn't experience the privilege in society, 
and stands on generation of elders who have fought, just like I acknowledged in the acknowledgement of country, for equality and uh, for justice and for freedom and all of these things. And we're still fighting for that in the present day. Uh, It doesn't matter which political party is in power. And uh, when you look at politics, not just even over the last three election cycles, but if we look at over the last 250 years, the very foundation of today's Australia, in inverted commas, is political. The fact whether it's invasion or settlement or stolen land or all of these things, which Australia still can't wrestle with or have conversation about, and I think often that's one of the things that goes, oh, I don't want to be political, so I'm not going to engage with that. It's very much an example of privilege. You know, as an Aboriginal person, I have to be across legislation, um, across the constitution, because it affects my lives and the future generations, um, the past generations where they haven't received justice. We need to engage with it because our lives are affected. You know, if Aboriginal people are truly to be part of Australia, which again is another political action, or people are like, well, we're all Australian, but then actually there's not equality. People have to get involved in what that means, and to not get involved is actually an action of privilege. So I'm really glad that you pointed that out. And I I, I guess my deep hope and prayer is that people would really think about what you're setting out as a challenge, political versus partisan what does it mean for your life? How do you get tired? But how does someone else that it does affect our lives, our tiredness, our exhaustion, and all of these things? So I think it's a great thing to be thinking about. It's very relevant in today, as well as the past and our future. And if we are really to see Australia mature as a nation, which is what I want, are we playing politics? Who's playing politics? Who's involved in politics? Who's not involved in politics? What does partisan mean? These are all really important discussions to be having and to think deeply about. Mm. And I wonder whether one of the reasons why some people would prefer to just disengage when they come across a topic that makes them feel uncomfortable, where they feel like someone is taking something that they thought was just a given and turning it into a political issue, that Part of that discomfort is recognising that it was already political. They just belonged to the side that had defined what is normal. So, for instance, you were saying before about even the language of Australia Mm. and that we're all Australian and that to see that as a truism or as given or as obvious or as natural is itself a political statement. It's a statement of what seems natural and normal because of the distribution of power in society. That's right. But for those who experience... The underside of that, Mm. it seems far from obvious that we are all Australian. That's right. Exactly right. Even for many Aboriginal people, and it's happened to me, to walk into a church and you're starting to build relationship and then the person goes, oh, but you don't look Aboriginal. And then in this one incident recently, I said, I, I started to talk about, well, why is that and the true history and the policy of the stolen generations and then the person's like oh I'm not trying to create conflict or not trying to do politics and it's like but your question is embedded in a political discussion and this is where policy government policy has affected Aboriginal people's lives and continues to affect Aboriginal people's lives and it then becomes part of talking about our identity which is you know tiring and exhausting, but is also seen as this conflict. Yeah, so that's right. The accusation 
that you are making something political is an accusation levelled by those who like the status quo and want it to remain normal. And I think that leads us nicely into a second segment, What is Going On, where we take news headlines from the last few weeks, perhaps ones that might not have been on the front page, but ones that are of more than just passing importance. Stories that highlight some of those deeper trends and forces that we were mentioning earlier. And our first story is about the bushfires and the smoke. And uh, the link here is a number of politicians are saying, let's not politicize these fires. And in a sense, what they're saying is, let's not ask too closely what caused them, what conditions helped them to worsen and who might be responsible for that. Let's instead just focus on responding to them. Let's leave the status quo as it is, thank you. And the story that I wanna talk about is Specifically, first, about the smoke. And so this is a story from SBS News from a few days ago. The headline is, Sydney set to keep wheezing through longest period of bushfire air pollution on record. And the story begins, Sydney has already recorded some of the worst air pollution the city has seen, as bushfires burn around the city with conditions to persist. The longest period of air pollution on record for New South Wales is set to continue with severe bushfire conditions across large chunks of the state. This story was from a couple of days ago, but the worst of the pollution was actually today as we record it, with many parts of the city and and parts of the state also having awful pollution, but, but many parts of Sydney seeing levels of particulate pollution that were as much as 12 times higher than the level deemed hazardous. That is more than 20 times higher than the air quality standards that are set nationally. It had reached a point where the smoke was no longer just a background phenomenon, but was really moving to the foreground, I think, of many people's experience. And Brooke, you you had some experiences today of the smoke. Do you want to share what it was like for you? Yeah, so I've just been back home up in Redcliffe for a week, and I think I'd got used to what this new kind of normal in Sydney seems to be, that there's always this smoke and haze around. But then going back up home with clean air by the seaside, and I was like, oh, hang on, this is different. But that was usually the normal is this clean air, blue skies, And then so to come back here to Sydney yesterday and then straight into today, which was very smoky, and I was walking through the city and I'd realised the last few weeks here in Sydney, I'd been inside. I hadn't actually been outside for that many activities or even to walk outside. And so today as I was walking through the city, you know, it's even hard to see uh, in front of you. So You know, usually the only other context I've had that in is when there's been really heavy fog um, somewhere, which is maybe, you know, once or twice a year, whether that's in Brisbane or Sydney. And here it was that this is the new reality and walking around the city and I'm seeing, you know, probably 1% of people wearing a face mask. And I became very conscious that I didn't have one. And I'm like, what is actually in the air? And as I was seeing people line up for their buses and just waiting with this whatever was in the air, I was thinking, should I be wearing a face mask? Why is the government not telling us what to do? Should the government be telling us what to do? Should there be free face masks being handed out? What am I breathing in? How is this impacting my health? All of a sudden it became really personal and really 
just obvious. It was like my eyes had been opened, which is interesting because I actually couldn't see. You don't have the same visibility as what I'm used to. And so, you know, I became very aware of the immediate, but what's the long-term impact of this? And uh, I think it is something that we should be talking about or being advised about, and there's just silence. Mm. And uh, across the city, schools were cancelling outdoor activities. Uh, Sydney ferries were called off for the day. Dozens of buildings across the CBD were evacuated as their smoke alarms went off, uh, including, ironically, the RFS headquarters, the Rural Mm. Fire Services. And uh, in terms of what's in the air, the short answer is it's the incinerated remains of our forests and fauna. Mm. But what's that doing to us? Well, that's a more complex question. Mm. To summarise the context for those who might not be from New South Wales and haven't been living and breathing this story daily, uh, across New South Wales, for the last uh, weeks, there have been over 100 bushfires active, uh, with many of them out of control. Around 2.7 million hectares have burned in thousands of individual fires over that uh, period of the month, including over 20% of the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. Once again today, most of Sydney and much of New South Wales suffered under air quality levels that went way into the highest hazardous category from the Environmental Protection Authority. At these levels, the risks are not just to those with respiratory conditions, the very young and the elderly, but it's bad news for everyone. Over the last few weeks, millions of people have faced prolonged exposure to dangerously elevated levels of particulate pollution. It is especially dangerous for the young, the elderly, and those with respiratory or circulatory issues. And there are people dying because of this. Air pollution kills millions of people around the world each year, according to the World Health Organization. Whether from stroke, cardiac arrest, asthma attack, or some other respiratory illness, or even things like vehicular collisions due to poor visibility or impaired cognitive function. This bad air is a killer. It's not yet possible to get air pollution on a death certificate or to determine the precise contribution of poor air quality on any particular heart attack or stroke. But during episodes like this, the death rate measurably jumps. The admission rate to hospitals jump. And at a population level, these fires and specifically the smoke are the most serious acute public health emergency we've seen for some time in New South Wales. Even where it doesn't kill, smoke irritates eyes and nose and throat, increases blood pressure, makes breathing more difficult, induces headaches, increases hospital admissions, shortens tempers, raises the risk of miscarriage while lowering concentration, memory and cognitive ability. So in addition to the six people who have died and the 600 odd homes lost to the flames, there are likely scores or hundreds up and down the coast whose recent deaths from other causes were triggered by or partially due to the smoke many thousands whose health has been compromised and millions whose lives have been worsened. The spring we just exited was the driest and second hottest on record across the continent due to a combination of factors, but all of them exacerbated by the long-term warming trend due to human climate disruption. Fire conditions across Australia, especially in the southeast, are measurably worsening in a warming world. This means that when they start, for whatever reason, fires are burning hotter for longer, earlier in the season and harder to manage. They're also burning in areas with no previous record of fire. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Australia plays an oversized role in worsening climate disruption, as we've discussed many times before. With just 0.3% of the world's population, our dirty energy industry is responsible for almost 5% of all fossil fuel emissions globally. If industry and government successfully pursue their expansion plans, while the rest of the world met its commitments under the goals of the Paris Agreement, then by 2030, in just 11 years, one-sixth of all 
global fossil fuel emissions would originate in materials dug up here. Within Australia, New South Wales and Queensland, where the fires have been the worst, contribute the lion's share of Australia's coal. The fires alight in our forests are worsened by the rocks that we dig up and burn. Coalition governments at federal and state levels have done their utmost to accelerate deeply unpopular fossil fuel extraction and stunt the growth of far more popular renewables, while also loosening protections on land clearing, further worsening the warming. On the world stage, we are considered amongst the least cooperative nations when it comes to agreeing shared responses to our global climate crisis. So the unprecedented bushfires, due to the underappreciated health dangers of smoke, are worse than most people realise. The conditions in which they have occurred are worse than before, due to warming, itself due to human activities, including the oversized role Australia plays, as a result of the policies embraced by our governments. As for the attempt by the Murdoch press and the government to shift the blame onto the Greens due to a reduction in hazard burns, this one is so wrong it's almost painful. First, there's no straightforward correlation in all contexts between hazard burns and fire risk, According to leading fire experts, it's complex and context-specific, with some forests actually becoming more prone to fire afterburns. Second, fires are currently burning in areas that had hazard reduction burns just months ago, demonstrating that that's not a panacea. Third, fires are burning in forests that haven't known fire for thousands of years, so this isn't just about fuel loads. Fourth, the Coalition have been in government at both state and federal level for many years, and so whatever the fire management policy is, it's, it's been their decision. Fifth, when asked to explain recent reductions in hazard burning, firefighters and experts point to two factors. A reduction in cooler periods in which such burns can be more safely managed, which is another impact of climate disruption, and the big cuts made by the New South Wales government to the top expert roles responsible for planning and managing these burns. So if you've been struggling to breathe, you might want to pay attention to medical advice but if you're struggling to see through the haze, it may be because those most responsible for worsening the conditions under which these fires are occurring are blowing smoke. You know, as we've talked about struggling to see through the haze, we've talked about people struggling to breathe. You know, another story I heard on the radio this week is that there's communities who are running out of asthma puffers. And so that's another one of the short-term and long-term effects. What happens to people's health when we don't have those preventive and life-saving measures as simple as an asthma puffer that's been so accessible to be purchased over the counter and now isn't there for people to use. And I think another thing that I really appreciated this week is, Byron, you wrote a reflection for Common Grace's Advent series on um, for this year, which is the theme of We Are Longing. But yours was about longing to breathe. And I think it really helped me reading that Advent reflection this week. And as I read it, I felt myself physically holding my breath. And I think there's so many in Australia who are holding our breath, whether that's directly from... Uh, lack of asthma puffers or what are we breathing in that's hazardous material or not being able to breathe, people who don't even have asthma, and also holding our breath as a nation to go, is this our new normal or will the government take action? Will anyone take action? Are we standing together with this? And so there's this constant thinking in your mind, but I feel like I'm holding my breath 
so often, just waiting. And I guess that's in this sense of we are longing. We're longing for a different future. We're longing to be able to breathe again. And that's what your Advent reflection was about, longing to breathe. And so I guess I just encourage your listeners to, if they haven't seen your Advent reflection, to look at it too, because it helped me just to center myself in this time and space and the reality of uh, struggling to breathe. Thanks, Brooke. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'll also put a link to a couple of other stories. We were just talking about how our political leaders are responding. Just in the last 24 hours, we've had Albanese, the leader of the opposition, doubling down on support for coal. And we've had Scott Morrison, the prime minister, saying that we don't need any further support for firefighters. So less than inspiring leadership from both sides there. Our next story is related to the first. It's also about the bushfires, but whereas we started by talking about the most obvious and uh, widely noticed impact of the fires, with millions of people living in smoky conditions, the second story is about some of the more hidden impacts, specifically on those parts of forest, rainforest, that have not burned, that are not adapted to fire, but which are also currently burning. I mentioned earlier that in the last couple of months, these fires have burned an area of 2.7 million hectares. It's hard to get your head around that. It's an area the size of Wales and half of Northern Ireland, uh, or it's the equivalent of all of Palestine and Israel. And that's 20% of the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, and it's well over 10% of all of New South Wales national parks. And that includes some significant tracts of Gondwanan rainforest, These are ecosystems that have not substantially changed for millions and millions of years, but are in a similar state to forests that existed on the ancient supercontinent of Gondwana. And these fragments of rainforest, uh, temperate rainforests scattered across New South Wales and southern Queensland, they're recognised as a World Heritage Area, and there's no evidence that any time in the last few thousand years that they have burned. But many of them, during this record-breaking drought, exacerbated by climate disruption, are currently burning. And so the second story is from the ABC, and the headline is The Community Defenders Helping to Save a Gondwana Rainforest from Bushfire. And it's a story about locals gathering together, self-organising, some of them having some bushfighting experience, but really working together to try to save these rainforests. And some of the people who are working to fight the fires were the same people who, four decades ago, were trying to stop bulldozers from coming in and logging in these areas, these precious remnants of ancient rainforests. And so there's a lady called Nan Nicholson, who was one of the original protesters to save one of these fragments back in the 1970s. There's a sad irony that some of the same people are needing to step up again to try to defend land that, until now, has been able to defend itself from fire through being too wet to burn, effectively. The full extent of the damage is still unknown, But unlike many of the places that are burning, which are adapted to fire and which will in time grow back, when these rainforests burn, we have no evidence that they will recover. And so we know neither the full extent of the damage nor even how much of it might be irreparable. There's a real fear, and expressed by UNESCO has has added their concern, that we may be losing priceless ecological treasures here. And this is one of those stories that is easy to to lose amidst all the the smoke and more obvious stories of houses being burned, which are also tragedies. Houses can be rebuilt, but 
when these forests are gone, they may be gone forever. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And even as we think about the last article that we were talking about and for us in the city who are struggling to breathe, we do think about those who have lost homes and precious memories and all of these things that can't be replaced, Mm -hmm. um, but a house can be replaced. But we do keep those people front of mind as well as the other effects for many of us as citizens in the capital cities. And I think these rainforests, there's so much to think about what's been lost. You know, from a personal point of view, I actually have never been to the Blue Mountains. And I'm like, what have I now missed out on? And even as these forests that have been lost, if they can recover, and that's a big if, will I be able to see it? Maybe I won't to be able to see what was there before. And so, you know, I think when we've thought about, many Australians have thought about climate change and the impacts, they've thought about the Great Barrier Reef and people making sure they've visited the Great Barrier Reef before it's too late. We've now got these incredible rainforests and trees that it might be too late for them too. And as we think about these as temperate rainforests, you know, my mind goes to tropical rainforest up in far north Queensland, which is kind of part of my story. I was born up in Cairns and my dad's been a tour guide up through the Daintree rainforest for many decades. uh, And he's taught me that country and I've traveled much of that country. And last year, this time last year, I was up uh, in the Daintree rainforest and I, you know, I've been up there for so many times, but the car was covered in dust And I'm like, this is in the rainforest. I've never seen dust in the rainforest. And, you know, I guess I am fearful. When will the Daintree rainforest, a tropical rainforest, be on fire? It's quite a real reality for us. These aren't just trees. I mean, the the scale, as you've outlined, the size of that area is just, it's hard to humanly think about what's been lost. And I think the images that the media give us are these little fires on a map, but are we seeing the scale of what's been burnt and lost? And I heard a story today from a person who's in relationship with Aboriginal peoples in their local community, which is one of the areas that's had significant burns and saying, you know, their Aboriginal friend had been part of cultural burns for the last five years in trying to protect this area and use those cultural Aboriginal practices. And now trees that are sacred and thousands of years old and story are now ash. They're gone. And so it's another element of loss. There's actual cultural loss as well. And so it's uh, something that we really need to pause and grieve and lament, but I hope that that drives us to action. Mm. And speaking of taking action, our next story, in contrast, is a good news story where action was taken and something really positive has been achieved. I'm aware on the good dirt that more than a few of our stories are not the kind that leave you feeling inspired and energetic and upbeat, but I wanted to more consciously make sure I include some positive stories. And so our next story is Humpback Whale Population on the Rise After Near Miss with Extinction, published in Science Daily. And it reads, a population of humpback whales in the South Atlantic has rebounded from the brink of extinction. Intense pressure from the whaling industry in the 20th century saw the western South Atlantic population of humpbacks diminish to only 450 whales. It's estimated that 25,000 whales were caught over approximately 12 years in the early 1900s. 
Protections were put in place in the 1960s as scientists noticed worldwide that populations were declining. In the mid-1980s, the International Whaling Commission issued a moratorium on all commercial whaling, offering further safeguards for the struggling population. A new study, co-authored by Grant Adams, John Best and Andre Punt from the University of Washington's School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences, shows the western South Atlantic humpback population has grown to 25,000. Researchers believe this new estimate is now close to pre-whaling numbers. And so here is a story going back a number of decades to one of those iconic issues that mobilised many people in the early days of the modern environmental movement, the catch cry of saving the whales, and that decision by the International Whaling Commission in the 1980s to issue a moratorium on commercial whaling was largely the result, or significantly helped by, widespread public pressure to that end, as people shifted from seeing the whales as a resource to be exploited to our fellow creatures, our kin, beautiful, intelligent life forms that we share this unique and beautiful planet with. And so I thought that was an excellent news story, hearing one population of uh, one iconic species of humpback whale being returned to something like its previous abundance through cooperation and a shift in, in consciousness and priorities. I love a good news story and I think we need more of them. So that's great to share that story. And I guess I'm reminded of in Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu, um, where he shares that beautiful story and it's recorded in one of the first settlers invaders journals about observing the Aboriginal people working in relationship with the dolphins to capture the fish and how the Aboriginal peoples were in tune with these whales and dolphins. And, you know, maybe there's something that we can learn about how to be in relationship with those beautiful sea creatures, again, that this makes it possible. Maybe a a whale joke might be a a good little thing to add in. I love my jokes. Yes. And so, uh, Byron... The classic, what do whales eat? I don't know, Brooke. What do whales eat? Fish and ships. <laughs> <laughs> well, Moby Dick is one of my favourite novels, and so, yes, very, uh, well, very something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should uh, stick to the justice issues than <laughs> my jokes. <laughs> Our next story relates to an issue that's been hiding in the background for the last couple of years, occasionally popping up its head, but with growing implications for more and more people. And it's a story on the ABC from a few weeks ago, and the headline is, Cashless Welfare Card Could Unfairly Target Thousands of Aboriginal People in the Northern Territory, Senate Committee Hears. It's a story by Chelsea Heaney. And it begins, thousands of Aboriginal people will be disproportionately affected if the federal government expands its cashless welfare card into the Northern Territory, a Senate committee has heard. Opinions were divided and people at times clashed over the proposed rollout of the initiative as the Community Affairs Legislation Committee met in Alice Springs on Thursday and heard from a raft of witnesses. So, Brooke, do you want to introduce what are these cards and why should we be paying attention? It's a new issue in one way, but it's a long-standing issue. And so these cashless welfare cards are a way of income management that really do disproportionately affect Aboriginal people. And it kind of goes back to the intervention under John Howard, where the army was brought in and Aboriginal people's lives were restricted based on 
falsehoods, uh, actually. Back that in have, 2007. Yes, that's right. And then the intervention became the Stronger Futures legislation. And this is where we've seen what's been called the Basics Card and Income Management, the Cashless Welfare Card. And so Aboriginal peoples, we've been talking about this for a long time and the impact it's had on our communities, particularly in the Northern Territory. But the way the government has structured it is now affecting poor white families as well. There's a great quote by the NPY Women's Council who presented at this Senate inquiry, and this is what they said. My people are already on the basics card and income management. What more can we have on top of us? We are poor at the moment. Always, we are poor. My people are struggling to find food every day. Uh, To go with this new system, usually they go into our lands and consult with every community in our remote area in the MPY region and also in the Territory. We're just struggling poor people on this earth. We don't need more cards on our back. And the reality is 58% of Aboriginal people in Australia live in poverty. You know, we might want to talk about a voice, an Aboriginal voice to Parliament, uh, but we've got voices that aren't being listened to and haven't been listened to, you know, since the intervention came in in 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. One of the key people that's listening, and I encourage people to follow her work, is Senator Malandiri McCarthy, who's from the Northern Territory. And this is one of the areas I don't want people to play politics or, um, and particularly those party politics. Um, Senator McCarthy is an Aboriginal woman from the community of Borroloola is where she comes from, which is incredible that she's in Parliament. And so she's a Labour senator. But the way she is reporting in the Senate, it's what we have known as Aboriginal people, regardless of party politics, for, you know, over a decade now. And we want people to pay attention. And when it's Aboriginal peoples that are disproportionately affected, it's non-Indigenous people. This is one of the issues we need you to engage with. Mm. Um, so, so how do the cards make life more difficult? Well, it restricts what you can purchase. People are like, they think Aboriginal people can't handle their money. But with my relationships, particularly through like the different networks I'm involved with, you have strong Aboriginal Christian leaders Uh, in the Northern Territory, who know how to handle their money, are not using it for alcohol or anything like that because they're in full-time ministry. They're not being paid by the churches for their full-time ministry, which is another injustice, but they aren't free to use their money as they see. And then what this Senate inquiry is uncovering is it's really inconsistently applied on what they have access to and what they don't have access to. But there's so many other ways that uh, the government could look at this, you know, the restriction on the sale of alcohol. They're not shutting down the people that have sold the alcohol incorrectly, because why would you shut down the non-Indigenous businesses that are earning a fortune off particularly Aboriginal people? The sad thing is we want to see hope for all people. And this is taking away Aboriginal people's hopes. The intervention took away Aboriginal people's hopes, including Aboriginal Christian leaders, to see aunties, elders crying because of the impacts of these cards, what was first the basics card and now potentially the cashless welfare card, it's destroying lives. And so we need people to pay attention, to actually engage with the issue, to learn about the issues and to stand alongside Aboriginal people who are trying to have our voices heard. Mm. Yeah, and it's worth adding that the paternalism involved in this card and, and this whole approach 
not only is it a depowering of the individuals on the card and not only does it make them beholden to a small number of uh, retailers from whom mm. they can buy and who therefore can mm. jack up their own prices in the absence of more competition, um, and not only does it make them more vulnerable to breakdowns in electronic uh, communication systems that make the cards not work, um, and so there was a whole community who didn't have access to, to any money for, uh, I think, over a week um, mm. when their, That's right. their internet connection went down for a while. But on top of all that, we're, we're still talking about people on Newstart. In addition to the paternalism is, is still this issue of an insufficient level of support to those who are amongst those in greatest need in our society and mm. where the rate of Newstart hasn't been raised meaningfully for decades. Mm. And so this, this paternalism comes on top of systemic poverty and disadvantage. Yes. So it's multiple issues all layered on top of each other. Mm. Uh, and, and as you say, that the failure to listen to the actual experience of some of the communities involved is not just a symptom of the problem, but is, is at its heart, mm. where a solution is being imposed without due regard. That's right. And uh, we know government systems continually fail <laughs> um, mm. all the time, and so you're putting our most vulnerable people at risk of system failures as well. Like I, I saw a video of it was a non-Indigenous lady, and one of the things the card is supposed to be paying your rent properly, and um, the system had failed and it was the first time she hadn't paid her rent. And so the extra pressure that that puts on you. Uh, and then she had to fill in like three different forms uh, for something that wasn't even her fault. It was a system, a government system failure. It's a real eye opener to understand how the most marginalized and poorest people in Australia are just trying to struggle to survive and that's what I'd love to see people's eyes open to and not just a judgment on why they're in that situation. And it takes days to resolve something like that and trying to fill in three forms. You don't have access to printers, you know, and this is a non-Indigenous person um, who's in one of the cities, not in a remote area. Mm. There's just so much to this situation. And I mean, one of the other things that Senator McCarthy reported on you know, we desperately are hoping and praying that parliamentarians, both sides of politics, will take action to close the gap, and both federal and state to close the gap on our health statistics. And the research has been done uh, that those on the current basics card are affecting the weight of babies. And mm. so the actual research has been done. You know, so that's contributing to the widening of the gap. So let's really look at this and see the interrelatedness of all of these things as well. That They're not just isolated incidences. They have impacts on, on other areas where we just want health and healing and happiness and hope for all people, but particularly when Aboriginal people are overrepresented in these areas for non-Indigenous people to engage and stand in solidarity with us. Yeah, that's such an important principle, not just on this issue, but as you're saying, across the board. And I guess another aspect of interrelatedness, this is a, a present issue that we're talking about in the last 10 years, but not to forget that history, but also how that goes in the broader context of the true history of these lands now called Australia. We think about stolen wages and Dr. Ros Kidd's work in uncovering the stolen wages, um, where up until the 1960s, 
Aboriginal children sent out at the age of 10 years old to work their whole lives and never paid a cent, um, and to do hard labour. Let's not forget they did hard labour as domestic servants, farmhands, um, and many other roles. And then, you know, even before this concept of stolen wages that lasted many decades, just the slavery of Aboriginal people that you know, Aboriginal people are the ones who built the roads that we now travel upon. And many of them were built on trading, Aboriginal trading routes. And so we had economies that were taken away. And so our income really has been managed for over 200 years when economies that had existed for thousands of years were not just destroyed, but taken over by a Western capitalist regime who then said we didn't have economies and so the broader history and context of what this means and Aboriginal people haven't forgot that and so it's another way of disempowering us that continued oppression and we want that lifted surely all peoples in these lands now called Australia want that lifted. Mm, That's right because poverty and disadvantage are not natural or based on innate characteristics Mm. they are historically contingent and the result of theft and dispossession and suppression yes speaking of suppression our fourth story is from the guardian on the 8th of december and the headline is australia's civil rights rating downgraded as a report finds world becoming less free The 2019 Civicus Monitor, a global research collaboration that tracks fundamental freedoms in 196 countries, has downgraded Australia from an open country to one where civil space has narrowed, citing new laws to expand government surveillance, prosecution of whistleblowers, and raids on media organisations. Human rights organisations have argued Australia needs a Bill of Rights to prevent government repression of fundamental human rights. The Civicus Monitor, and that's a, uh, an acronym, C-I-V-I-C-O-S, the Civicus Monitor assesses freedoms such as association, peaceful assembly and expression, categorising countries as closed, repressed, obstructed, narrow or open. And in its recent report, People Power Under Attack, it explores how all across Asia those freedoms are being quietly eroded or explicitly repressed in almost every country. And in that report... It says the most alarming deterioration in civic space is occurring in Australia, which has been downgraded from open to narrowed. That's the most alarming deterioration across the Pacific. Australia has seen the recent criminal justice examples of the prosecution of whistleblower Witness K, who exposed Australian bugging of ally East Timor's cabinet room under the guise of a benevolent aid project, and the secret trial of Witness J, who was tried, convicted, and sentenced on national security charges in complete secrecy. Victorian police have also been condemned for using violence against protesters at a series of anti-mining demonstrations in Melbourne in October. A report from Legal Observer's Melbourne Activist Legal Support said police were antagonistic and set a tone of violence during three days of protests. Police sprayed demonstrators with capsicum spray excessively, were overzealous in using batons, and drove police horses into protest lines to break them up endangering animals and people. Victoria Police has consistently denied the allegations, maintaining officers responded appropriately to the situation. Civicus said freedom of the press was under particular threat in Australia, with raids on journalists' homes and on media organisations. Whistleblowers are targeted for exposing government wrongdoing and face prosecution under the Intelligence Services Act. Technology companies are facing an environment of increasing surveillance with new legislation passed which will force IT companies to hand over user information even if it's encrypted. 
And it goes on with more examples in this uh, story. And the, there's an overall theme in this report of declining freedoms all across Asia and much of the world, but with particularly concerning things being noted in Australia. And I found this report not particularly surprising. This felt like it confirmed a trend that I'd been noting with growing alarm over the last couple of years to increasing ubiquity of surveillance and a decline in government transparency with fewer and fewer freedom of information requests, for instance, being replied to in an appropriate time frame. But also the criminalisation of dissent, as many states have been introducing much harsher penalties for those involved in certain kinds of protest. All these trends are concerning. They don't indicate that we are living in a police state, as, as some might claim. But as Civicus notes, we are moving away from an open society, but on the road in that direction. Brooke, what are your perspectives on this, given that these are not new experiences for Aboriginal people, but perhaps this is more of us experiencing higher levels of coercive government actions than has previously been the case? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I was born and raised in the lands now called Queensland. And so most Australians are very familiar with the Joe Bielke-Peterson days. And you still see that news footage and cracking down on people protesting and being arrested. And, uh, you know, many Aboriginal people so were put Joe in jail. Premier in Queensland for a couple of decades, just for our international listeners. Yes, that's right. And uh, over the last few years, I've particularly noticed it, and I know other Queenslanders have noticed it and going, are we going back to these Bielke-Peterson days? Much shame was put on Queensland for what was happening under Bielke-Peterson's era, but you're instantly reminded and have been over the last few years. And so uh, it's interesting that this report has now come out to really shine a light on what's been going on. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who was visiting from Canada. She'd been away for 10 years. She had been in Australia and she'd moved back to Canada and she'd come back and she was like trying to compare what the differences were. And she's like, oh, I just feel like Australia's a bit different. And then I said how our media had been raided (laughs) um, under government instruction and she was horrified. Mm. Um, I mean, for a Canadian to hear that is like, what is going on in your country? And then she's like, oh, maybe I don't want to move back to Australia. And as I told her about what's happening to Aboriginal people, then we've just had, you know, the shooting of Kumanjay Walker in the Northern Mm. Territory from Yundamu community. By a police uh, officer. By a police officer. That's right. And so we've still got you know, when we look at Aboriginal deaths in custody, that people are dying in state systems (laughs) uh, with no one held to account. You know, corrections officers don't have to give statements of evidence when they've noticed someone, when they've been present at someone dying under suspicious circumstances. And Mm. so, you know, that's our Aboriginal reality, but it's now affecting broader society for something that we've known for a long time. You know, I joke on the phone, um, sometimes you get that, uh, like, interference, I call it, the aliens are coming, and then joke about, oh, it's, you know, ASIO tapping the phone. But it's actually merely a reality. It probably is a reality, you know? So it's it's an interesting thing how even our language has changed through the heightened awareness of this surveillance and the lack of our civil rights or the policing of those civil rights. And when you were on previously on The Good Dirt, we discussed at length the pattern of Indigenous deaths in custody and some of the Guardian reporting around that that continues to be updated. Mm-hmm. 
and so listeners can go back to episode two to explore that particular issue in more detail. But as this uh, Civicus report is noting, it's it's not simply one issue here. It's a, it's a raft of issues all moving in a similar direction. And we're certainly not in Russia or China or Turkey or Mexico. Uh, you know, we're, we're not in places where journalists are routinely killed as a result of their reporting. We're, we're not yet at a place where people are being disappeared in large numbers. But... The framework for some of these things to happen is increasingly being constructed. Police powers are expanding. Police accountability has never been great. And uh, if anything, has been going backwards. The levels of corruption in our public life are no, no better than they ever were. The federal government continues to resist moves towards a federal ICAC or any kind of body that could genuinely shine a light into some of those murky relationships. We've never had an outstanding example of a civil society and a fully functioning democracy, yet perhaps many of us have had it better than most people in the world for much of the time. Um, and there are some alarming trends in the direction that we've been heading recently. When you think about, you know, it was only a few months ago back in October where every newspaper in the country ran the same front page. And I was actually in Adelaide and, you know, it's not a newspaper I would ever usually buy, but the Adelaide Advertiser, it's, well, only the second time I've ever bought it in my life because it had this front page and I couldn't believe even the Adelaide Advertiser was trying to speak out. That's That's right. And what did that front page say? Nothing. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yes. So the exactly. story was that all, all newspapers in Australia published a blank or a blanked out front page yep. in a collective protest mm. against increasing government interference in the media. This was quite a unprecedented and powerful statement from a media industry that is usually completely fractious and... <laughs> there's not a lot of love lost between the Murdoch press and much of the rest of the press in Australia... Uh, with the Murdoch Press being by far the dominant voice. Mm. And yet there was a joint recognition that the government's actions were deeply troubling, not just to the industry, but to all of us who care about truth and having some sense of what's going on in the world, which if you're listening to this podcast, presumably that's you as well. And speaking of surveillance and repression, we move from those some of those steps in that direction to a much more full-blown example. Um, We're going to turn to some international news for our final story. And this is a story also from The Guardian under the title of The China Cables. And there are a number of stories that came out. I'm looking particularly at one called Allow No Escapes. Leak exposes reality of China's vast prison camp network. Documents confirm largest mass incarceration of an ethnic religious minority since the Second World War. The internal workings of a vast chain of Chinese internment camps used to detain at least a million people from the nation's Muslim minorities are laid out in leaked Communist Party documents published on Sunday. The China Cables, a cache of classified government papers, appear to provide the first official glimpse into the structure, daily life and ideological framework behind centres in northwestern Xinjiang region that have provoked international condemnation. Obtained by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and shared with The Guardian, The BBC and 15 other media partners, the documents have been independently assessed by experts who have concluded that they are authentic. China said they've been fabricated. However, the documents are consistent with mounting evidence that the country runs detention camps that are secret, involuntary 
and used for ideological education transformation. Last bit in quotes. When reports surfaced of mass internments without trial, authorities in Beijing initially denied the existence of the detention centres, whose inmates are mostly Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities. After satellite photos and a flood of testimony from former detainees and relatives became impossible to ignore, the party insisted they were for voluntary, vocational training. The cables provide apparent confirmation from within China's bureaucracy that the camps were envisaged from the start as brainwashing detention centres, to be constructed on a massive scale, with inmates confined by multiple layers of security. And then the rest of the article goes into some of the details of the conditions under which the detainees are being held and the uh, practices that are used. But there's a pattern here of mass incarceration, over a million people, in which families are split, and there's an attempt at forced assimilation with the suppression of a cultural, religious, and linguistic identity of a minority. And as the story notes, this is the largest scale mass incarceration of an ethnic religious minority since the Second World War. These cables confirm as true what has been rumoured and, and reported from, from scraps of information and satellite images for the last uh, year or two. But this is a startling further confirmation of the, the scale of the repression that is going on here in Western China. We haven't spoken much on The Good Dirt about international stories, and there's a way in which raising China's human rights record can seem like an easy free kick. It's an enormous country with an authoritarian government uh, whose uh, abuses are on a scale commensurate with the size of the nation. And yet I raise this story not simply to have a go at the Chinese, though obviously there are awful things happening there, but to also contrast it or compare it with our own context here. That if Australia wants to uh, join the rest of the world in condemning these human rights abuses, then there's an easy comeback, given we also engage in mass incarceration of people convicted of no crime, splitting up families uh, and keeping people in inhumane conditions in our offshore detention centres with the recent news of the Medivac bill being repealed, the conditions in those offshore camps has again worsened with less access to necessary medical care than, than they had even just a few weeks ago. There's a point here to be made about looking first to our own mistakes, but I think there's also a broader and deeper historical context here. And Brooke, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, well, I mean, as you were explaining this news article and the situation in China and when else has that happened? Obviously, you know, my mind goes to colonial Australia and we can still, you know, we already kind of briefly mentioned Aboriginal deaths in custody, but the overrepresentation of Aboriginal peoples in our prison systems today, it's massive. Uh, 62% of the young people in youth detention centres in Queensland are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Every single young person in detention centre in the Northern Territory is Aboriginal. And these are children as young as 10 years old, as well as our heart aching for our asylum seeker brothers and sisters. And I've already talked in this podcast about the lack of hope for Aboriginal people. So we feel deeply for our asylum seeker brothers and sisters in those offshore detention centres. And we want freedom for them because we know what it's done to our people in the present state, as well as in historical colonial Australia, which we could still say is colonial Australia here today. And when we actually understand the true history, and I mean, that's one of the 
other areas of the uh, statement from the heart calls for a truth-telling commission. Our nation has never wrestled with its true history, and we want that. We need that because we can't be pointing fingers internationally when we haven't dealt with our own business. And in 1788, when Philip came, Aboriginal people, we were once 100% of the population of Australia. 100% of the population of Australia. Today, we're like 3%. But in 1788, it's estimated there were over a million Aboriginal people in these lands now called Australia. By the early 1900s, our population dropped to a mere 90,000 people. And today in 2019, we still haven't recovered to those population levels pre-colonisation. And so when you mention a million Chinese people, like, you know, that's actually very comparable to what was here in Australia for Aboriginal people and how we've been affected and in Australia's history up until the 1960s and 70s, those detention camps were run by missions, many of them run by the church. We think about uh, Kevin Rudd's apology speech, and I encourage people to go back and read that apology speech to hear some of the stories. And actually even challenge you more than that, go and read the whole uh, National Inquiry, the Bringing Them Home report of 1997. But in Kevin Rudd's speech, he tells the story of one lady and she's telling her story. I think she's in her 90s. And when they were removed from their family, um, so this is the 1920s, her family were split like her cousins and brothers and sisters were split up into three lines and they went to three different missions run by three different denominations. And that was how it was done. And so that ideological passing on as well, it's not just the Christian story, it's the denominational um, lines and indoctrination of Aboriginal people that uh, still affects our people today, um, Aboriginal Christians today. And so, you know... The implications of those families being split, you know, resonate down through the generations. Yes. That's not something that just is in the past. That's right, exactly. And these people are still alive today. Mm. Um, And so this is, you know, I think it's very relevant and part of why we need this truth-telling commission. So if everyone, anyone's ever asked, well, what do Aboriginal people want a truth-telling commission? It's not just for us, it's for all of us. And so that we can actually step into our role in the international scene as Australia as well. And I think that's very relevant when we think about China. What is our role in the international scene and our relationship with China? Mm. That's right. So as we rightly condemn the mass incarceration mm-hmm. and these highly efficient, apparently, and, and you know ubiquitous electronic surveillance and, and all the things that are being done to the Uyghur Muslim minority uh, in Western China, uh, we are remembering that Australia's own efforts, minus the computer surveillance, but with very similar patterns, are not ancient history. Mm-hmm. They not only the effects of them continue on, but there are people still alive who were directly affected by some of those policies and procedures that were in some ways a standard part of colonialism Mm. exported around the world um, and that China's crime is to be continuing today, continuing patterns that were established by colonial powers in centuries and decades past, including here in this land. So what then do we do? Come to our third segment part of the show that tries to be a little bit more practical or action-oriented and provide listeners with some tips, something immediate we can do today, something to read or watch that's going to expand our mind, deepen our understanding of some of these issues, and then a more ambitious life commitment towards justice. 
And so, Byron, I guess um, as we think about immediate action, uh, I want to ask you, as someone who's taught me about how hazardous the air is, should my immediate action be to go and buy a face mask? Or, like, today as I was walking around the city, I was looking for a chemist as I was contemplating that that should actually be my immediate action. But then I was like, well, the government haven't told me that the air's hazardous but you're telling me and so I'm listening to you and so what's your advice is that a good immediate action for me to take and fathers yeah I usually encourage people to think about systemic responses to systemic problems not just personal ways of reducing the impact on yourself in that ultimately what we need is action on climate change less disruption to and and better protection for our forests and, and better resourced firefighters and and uh, more listening to ancient wisdom about land management and all those things. But yes, there is a place, I think, for mitigating the impact of air pollution on us. And the government is actually telling us that it's dangerous through the Environmental Protection Agency mm. and the Air Quality Monitoring. So you can go and check. Uh, we'll put a link to the Air Quality uh, Index site from the New South Wales government. That gives you a lot of information. Some of it can be a little bit difficult to parse, and it's always a couple of hours out of date, but it does give you a sense of where in the state air quality might be at dangerous levels and when it might be a good idea to reduce your exposure. Now, the easiest way to reduce your exposure is to get into a place that is inside, preferably with filtered air or good air conditioning that has filtering. But if you can't do that and you do have to be outside, a face mask is literally better than nothing. Unless you have a really expensive, professionally fitted face mask, you will still be breathing in stuff that's bad for you when the air quality is bad. But a face mask can make a difference. And there are two most straightforward options for people. At most chemists, uh, you can get for free or very cheap surgical masks, which are just thin, papery uh, kind of masks that, that mould around your face. And it's the kind of thing you see a surgeon wearing in an operation and it's primarily designed to stop germs going out of your nose and mouth onto other people, and it does a pretty good job of that. It's not really designed to block air pollution. It, it may have some marginal benefit in doing that, particularly if it's tight around your face as best as possible. Better than that are what are called P2 masks that you can get not from the chemist but from a hardware shop. These are the kind of masks that builders use when they're doing things that create a lot of dust. And they filter out more. They're still not getting you to clean air, but they're, they're getting a bit further along the way towards it. So if you are able to find face masks, then the P2 mask is the, the better kind to get. I guess maybe I've been watching a bit too much uh, The Hunger Games or the Divergent series and my sense of a government announcement is a megaphone in the streets telling us what to do. So thank you for clarifying that for us too. Yeah, no, you're right though that we do not have government ministers willing to speak about the dangers that air pollution brings Mm -hmm. because of the very dynamic that we were talking about earlier of this issue. They're not wanting to politicise this issue by which... I think they mean they don't want to acknowledge the role that coalition governments at federal and state level have played at exacerbating the conditions under which the fires have occurred. They don't want to talk about it. So talking about the public health crisis that is created by weeks of uh, elevated levels of particulate pollution is a topic that they would rather hide at the back end of a government website if they have to talk about it at all. Our second recommendation is for a book or film or podcast. And we haven't actually ever had a podcast recommendation, but I'm going to make one this time. 
And the recommendation is a little podcast called The You Catastrophe. That is catastrophe with EU at the start of it, which isn't a, uh, a pro-Brexit podcast, as uh, some of the more lighthearted reviewers like to joke about. But it's actually a term taken from the writing of J.R.R. Tolkien, who is talking about a surprise that is good. An amazing surprise, a great turning in a narrative that brings about an amazing ending. And for Tolkien, who was a, a Catholic, a Christian, for him the ultimate eucatastrophe was the resurrection of Jesus. This eucatastrophe is a podcast of two friends of mine, Dave and Joel, who are both very interested in politics and the church. Their tagline is, join Dave and Joel as they meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and whether life may in fact be enchanted. And in particular, I wanted to recommend one of their recent episodes called Friends with Bad Opinions, in which they explore the question of political disagreement within relationships and to what extent it's possible to maintain a friendship when your friend has a, an opinion that you disagree with. And are there some opinions that are so divergent that they rightly may end a relationship? And so they explore that with their typical humour and uh, nuance and insight. And I, I recommend all their uh, episodes, but that's a good one, I think, to start with if you haven't come across them before. Uh, so that's the U catastrophe available on most podcast platforms. And Brooke, I think you've got a film recommendation as well. Yeah, I loved um, the good news uh, story that we had as part of this podcast. And one of the good news pieces in terms of Aboriginal things this week has been uh, the Actor Awards. Uh, and many Aboriginal actors and actresses and films and TV programs were nominated. And um, I guess I want to just give a little plug if people are looking for a really great film, Top End Wedding, um, that Miranda Tapsell was involved in and acted in as well. Just a really beautiful representation of Aboriginal culture, a great story, a rom-com, and well worth your time for something lighthearted that engages you with Aboriginal culture and story as well. Excellent, I'll look out for that one. Our third recommendation is for a more ambitious life commitment towards justice. And some of these have been really quite demanding and have really been about sort of the direction of your whole life. This one is in some ways a bit easier, but I think may still end up uh, having quite a profound impact if you follow through with it. And that is that we would like to encourage listeners, if you're in Australia, to go and look up the Change the Heart services that will be occurring in the lead up to the 26th of January next year uh, in just about a month's time. Uh, there's a series of Christian services that will be held in uh, all around the nation. Brooke, why don't you explain the vision for these services? Yeah, so it's Auntie Jean Phillips, uh, who's our most senior Aboriginal Christian leader in Australia across all the denominations, is calling our nation to prayer. And so from the 15th to the 25th of January, right across these lands now called Australia, 20 prayer services in total over that 15th to the 25th of January, where we come together in prayer as community to think about the true history of Australia and how that true history has affected our present to pray for our nation as January 26th is one of the most divided times um, in our calendar as a nation. And so we're providing a way for people to listen to Aboriginal people, to learn and to come together in what it means to reconcile with the true history of Australia and today's Australia. So it's a really 
really great thing to come and be a part of and get out of your own congregations, denominations. There's non-Christians that come along as well and to form that community at such a, a critical time in our calendar each year. Thanks. I've, I've really been personally moved and encouraged by those services in the past, and I'm, I'm not aware of anyone who's been to one that hasn't found it a profound experience. So I warmly add my recommendation to Brooks there. And if you're looking for all the dates and the locations of the services, um, you go to the Common Grace website, www.commongrace.org.au, and you'll be able to see the Change the Heart Prayer services there. We'll put links to all this, as always, in the show notes. And that brings us to the end of our episode. This is the bit where the music comes back in and you start to fumble for the controls of your phone or device and where I tell you to share, comment, subscribe, review and do the things that make this little community grow. Thanks, Brooke. It's great to have had you on the show once more. How can people find you online? Uh, I've got a public Facebook page and Instagram that's at Brooke Prentice Grass Tree. So that's one of the best ways to find me. Excellent. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And thanks, listener, for sticking with this little podcast experiment, one in which we're continuing to dig into realities that stink and are sometimes frankly repulsive. Composting teaches us that what seems least pleasant can be the best place to see fresh ground being made. So let's get our hands dirty and perhaps we'll see new shoots of growth amidst the muck. Our producer is Simon Bunstead. Music is by Francis Breve. I'm Byron Smith and this is The Good Dirt. <laughs>